Well, good morning. Would you join me in opening up our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1? If you want to follow along in a blue pew Bible in front of you, I would encourage you to do so. You'll find Colossians 1 on 983. We are in week two of our vision series. Um, if you've kind of been with us, if you missed last week, we're not done in the book of Mark. Uh, we were just taking a short break. Uh, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Mark since January and now taking just six weeks to do something that we've done every fall here um, at Grace Church for now the fourth year to really just reiterate why do we do what we do? What is our vision here? Uh, my fear has always been that something could become so normal that you actually start to forget why you do it. And then that's just a little bit downstream from eventually just giving it up altogether when you forget why you do what you do. So last week, um, we dug into the first part of this mission vision statement. The statement is simple, I think. Um, glorifying God by making disciples through Christ-centered worship, community, service, and mission. And I said last week, I'll say it again, I don't really, it's not, I don't really care if you memorize that. Like, it, it, it's, I mean, hey, more power to you if you do. I think there's some good advantages too, but we don't want to, like, you be waking up in the middle of the night, just cold sweat saying this mantra, all right, that, like, glorifying God and making disciples. Like, we, we want this to be something that's going to fuel your life, that your life's going to be shaped by it, far more important whether or not you memorize it. And Last week, we got to dig deep into what it is to glorify God. Like, what is the glory of God? Why do we exist to glorify God? And we saw how the whole scope of Scripture from creation to recreation kind of spotlights, shows the glory of God as the blazing center of all things. came across a quote by Jonathan Edwards this past week that fits in well. Edwards says, If only God is supremely valuable, the best we can do is to value Him supremely. If only God is supremely valuable, the best we can do is to value him supremely. That there is no higher calling you have as a person in this world and as a part of a church than to glorify God, to make much of him. And so what we said at the end of last week was that the answer to every question that starts with why in the church has at its core the desire to glorify God. So why are there 10 people down the hall getting spit on as they hold babies and are trying to be like, is it 11.15 yet? Um, they are doing it for many reasons, but they're doing it primarily to glorify God. Why do we have a team that's really, right now, like starting to fire up a grill to get a lot of burgers and, and hamburgers going and setting up the tables? We've been here early setting up tables. Um, again, a lot of reasons, but primarily to glorify God. Why is there somebody running slides? Why are there people at the door? Why is there somebody on the sound right now? Um, a lot of reasons, but beneath it all glorify God, make much of him. And so as we transition this morning, if glorifying God is our primary aim in life, then making disciples is our primary task. If glorifying God is our primary aim, then making disciples is our primary tasks of how we're going to do that. And that phrase, making disciples, maybe you're familiar with it, maybe you're not. Um, it's not something that we came up with in like a boardroom and decided this is a great phrase, let's use it. Um, comes straight out of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. For those who might be unfamiliar with these verses, by this time Jesus had been crucified, he's been raised to new life, and he's gathered on this mountain with his closest followers before he'd ascend back into heaven to reunite with the Father, and Jesus commissions them with these words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples 
of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That commission, those verses, go and make disciples, is what sparked the era of the church, an era that 2,000 years later we're still in. And we saw kind of the early forming of that in the book of Acts, and these men and women spread into the surrounding area, proclaiming Christ, teaching people wherever they went, and that process has just gone on and on and on throughout history. Wherever God's people have gone, disciples were made, churches were planted always tied to the hip. Disciples are made, churches are planted, and we are still, praise God, getting to unreached people groups, making disciples, planting churches. That commission still stands 2,000 years later. Cultures change, generations change, landscapes change, the methods might even change, but our task is the same. Make disciples. So here's how we're going to spend our time. Again, like last week, it's going to be a little bit of a different of a sermon, that we're not going to just stay in one passage for the whole morning, but we're going to kind of zoom the lens out and look at all the aspects of discipling and making disciples, kind of big picture, and then that'll set us up for the next four weeks so we can start breaking it down into kind of more focused areas. And, but again, just need to reiterate, why do we need to do this? Because that phrase, making disciples, you're going to hear it, and you're going to see it, and you're gonna, it's going to be all around you at Grace Church if you hang around here long enough. And we run the risk of it becoming so common and yet vague. So what, we're, what I'm after this morning, above all else, is just clarity. I just want to be clear. I want you to walk out being clear on what discipling is, what making disciples is, kind of the why, what, who, and where of making disciples. And so kind of up front, I just want to lay some definitions out, um, just like we kind of did last week, just get on the same page of what are disciples, and we'll get more into this later, but at its simplest form, disciples are followers of Jesus. Uh, Actually, the literal translation of disciple is a Christ learner. You're, you're, You're a Christ learner. You're following him. You're learning from him. You're becoming a disciple of Jesus. And so the verb discipling is simply teaching, Helping others follow Jesus, teaching others to follow Jesus. And we we teach through words, and we teach through guidance, and then we teach by showing people how to live by living in front of them. And then lastly, last just definition before we really get going, discipleship. Another word you'll kind of hear, it's in a lot of books. And what was discipleship? Simply a process through which people grow in following Jesus. So first, we're going to start with why. Always start with why. Why make disciples? Because if we don't start there, like if we're not compelled as to why we should do something, it doesn't matter how good your tactics are, it doesn't matter how good your, your agenda is or your strategies are, if you're not convinced why that you should do something, then you'll never really buy in. So we're going to start with why, and that brings us to Colossians 1, 13 through 20. Follow along as I read. He, he here is God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, verse 15, he is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in that everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. When it comes to Jesus, the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, there's probably no other passage in the Bible that has been studied, discussed, and interpreted more than this one. If you're a theology nerd, like I kind of am, I'm an amateur theology nerd, this is like the Mount Everest of Christology, the the, the theology of who Jesus is, that being the center of it all. And you could easily preach 15 sermons just in those verses. And I know you're like, dude, you always say that. And I'm like, I know I always say that, but literally, like, maybe I will someday. You can do probably 15 sermons just in those verses. But for our purposes this morning, I just want to put on display how these verses tell us why making disciples is the primary way we glorify God in the church. Because to start, these verses are so significant, and they provide this kind of window, this glance into where's all history headed? Like, where's this whole ship going? Where does this end? What's the end game here anyway? Like, that's a question we ask often in our life. If you're a part of a job and there's a vision going out with your job, like, you kind of want to know as an employee, what's the end game here? What's the goal? You're a big fan of a team, and they're going through a rebuilding process, and you kind of want to know from management, what's the end game for this team? So what's our question in the church? What's God up to? Where is this all headed? What should we be on the lookout for? Verse 20, again, kind of shows us this glimpse. Look at it again, verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The end towards which God is moving everything is a time of peace. And it's a time of peace in the heavens and in the earth where Christ reigns over all. And so this is the single unified storyline of the entire Bible, right? Cover to cover. God created the world, and it was good. And there was this perfect union between God and man and between man and woman, and it was awesome, and it lasted for two chapters, like, if you knew nothing about the Bible and you just opened it up starting read at the beginning, you go, man, this is a good story. And then you turn the page. Oh, oh no. Like, that fell quickly. And then the whole Bible is this unfolding of God's plan to restore that creation and reconcile all things back to himself. And then at the very end of your Bible, the last two chapters, you get this glimpse of this recreation. It's cover to cover, first two to last two. The whole story in between is what God is doing And the centerpiece of that plan of reconciliation is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's Christ-centered, right? It's where we're getting that phrase. It's what we're getting those words because it's Jesus Christ who's been given all authority. He just said that in that passage. All authority has been given to me. And it's he who made peace by the blood of the cross and will reign over creation forever. Here's like the story of the Bible. It's never about us. It's never primarily about us. We're just not the center of God's creation. We had a role to play, but our role was pretty negative, wasn't it? Like we were opposed to God. We were guilty in rebellion. We made war against his rule and reign by trading in his glory for our own. We talked about that last week. And wherever rebellion and war reigns, the only way peace is restored is through the shedding of blood. Do you think about this? Any war across history is require the shedding of blood in order to restore peace. 
So I'm not going to get into that. I don't know where you stand on wars, and is that a just war or not just war? Should we be in this? Should we not be in this? But if you just kind of look back across history, with any time there's been a war, we can agree that where there's rebellion, where evil starts to spread, the only way to restore peace is through bloodshed. So World War II, I think we can agree on that. Hitler going throughout Europe, just taking over, throwing millions of people in concentration camps, just doing wicked, wicked things that had to end, right? Well, what was the way to end it? Hey, Hitler, could you stop? You should, you should stop. I think we tried that. I don't think it worked. The only way it was going to be a restore of peace in the world at the time was through the shedding of blood. The difference in the spiritual war of the gospel, where it explodes, where it becomes almost scandalous, is that Jesus came and overcame evil, not by taking others' blood, but by giving his own. It came through this selfless sacrifice where the Father sent Jesus to shed his own blood on the cross in order to make peace. Like, that's why he said, like, this end where everything is headed, this peace, it was purchased at the cross. You can't over-exaggerate how important the cross was and what it did. Look back at the text. What did it do? Verse 13 again. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, Those who repent of their sin, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ and commit to follow him, they receive forgiveness of sins. They become followers of Jesus. So back to the question, why make disciples? Why why is that our primary aim? Why is that our primary task in church, in this church? The answer is because it's God's only plan for rescuing people from inescapable darkness. There is no other way out than becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that passage just shows God is gathering a people to himself. That's what he's doing in this meantime. That's why he's not coming back yet. He's in the process of this word going out and people just gathering a people to himself, a people over which he will reign, a people who, how did Paul describe them? The church. He'll reign over the church, people centered on faith in Christ, purified by his blood with new hearts. And it's only through Christ that people will be set free. Only through Christ that people will be reconciled to God. So, and like, in some ways, they're like, what else would we want to do? There's nothing else we'd want to do once this kind of sinks in, once we see why. That glorifying God by making disciples is our only way. It's our only eternal purpose. It's not our only purpose in life. We have all kinds of lesser purposes, right? You're going to get up and you're going to go to work tomorrow to provide for your family. That's a purpose you have. You hopefully are going to volunteer in your community to help the least of these, to help them flourish, the flourishing of mankind in social, structural ways. We invest in friendships that help one another flourish in this journey of life. All those are important, but they all serve a higher purpose. They all come just beneath this, uh, adding to this greater eternal purpose, your only eternal purpose, to make disciples. And it's a matter of death and life at the highest level. And so we need to know this, but then we need to really know it. You know what I'm saying? Like, to know it in such a way where you're convinced that this is critical, because it's only that way you'll actually do it. I'm not a psychologist, I don't pretend to be, but the way I see it, there's kind of two ways to know something. There's a way you can know something, but it doesn't really matter to you. Like, it really doesn't shape the way you live. But then there's a way to know something that compels action. 
So quick example for this. I'm sure we could use dozens of examples, but um, we'll just go with this. Um, we all generally know it would be good for our health if we uh, watch what we eat, right, watch what comes into our body, and we try and live an active lifestyle. I don't think there'd be much argument there that we, in general, we know we should eat healthy, we should be active, just for the ongoing flourishing of our bodies. Um, and while we all generally know that, like, that's often not compelling. Like, you know what's compelling? Brownies. <laughs> At every single meal. I will not judge you if you eat a brownie, all right? Everything in moderation, everything in moderation. But, but what's compelling is to just not really care about your health and just to live in the moment and just eat whatever you want because it tastes good. So what happens if you have a checkup, doctor sits you down, and you thought you were healthy, and you thought you were just fine and whatever, and all of a sudden he shows you some tests, and he shows you some levels, and he says there's some really things that should concern you here. And this doctor, he or she tells you that, in fact, if you don't make some changes to your habits, the way you eat, how active you are, you, you probably just won't live much longer. Isn't that a different kind of knowledge? Isn't that a different kind of knowing that's compelling? Like before, you always generally knew it, but now something has happened. Now it's a matter of life and death. If you don't commit yourself to being healthier, there's a different way to know that's going to compel action. And likewise, it won't be until we as a church know, and not just generally know, but become convinced that making disciples is God's eternal plan for bringing men and women from death to life. That we're able to actually be compelled to commit our lives to it. We have to start with why. So let's keep going. Why is the most important question, but there's other meaningful questions here that will help us, again, just bring clarity, wrap our arms around this task of making disciples. So, second question, who? No, what? We'll get there, who? But first, what? What is a disciple? Again, we defined it in its simplest terms at the outset, but there's a lot more to say here. In its simplest terms, a disciple is a follower, Someone who orients their mind and their hearts towards someone and their way of living. And so I say this because when we say disciple, and I think when our culture says disciple and talks about disciple, we all generally associate it with being a disciple of Jesus Christ and with church and the Bible. And that's just kind of the way that word has kind of, kind of anchored in our culture and our language. But you can be a disciple of anybody. Let me put it a different way. You will be a disciple of someone. It's just a matter of who. Everybody is a disciple, and everyone will orient our lives around something. So to be a disciple is not just to know about them, it's to orient your life, and, and, and the way you live is impacted by them. And all of us, just want to be total clear, all of us orient our lives around someone, or are imitating someone, whether that's an actual person, I want to be like this person, I want to do what they do, I want to orient my life around them so I'm like them, or oftentimes, I'd say more oftentimes, it's this ideal version of somebody that we have in our mind that we're trying to be, or ideal version of ourselves. Throw a quote on the screen by Mark Dever, he's a pastor down in D.C., wrote a little book called Discipling, really helpful little book. He puts it this way, all of us inevitably will be influenced by others, and we will, in turn, influence others. The people around you will influence you for better or worse, and for better or worse, you, in turn, will affect the people around you. An absentee father 
influences his children even in his absence. None of us is an island. Making the point that you don't choose to be a disciple or not, you are a disciple. The question is, what are you a disciple of? Likewise, and we'll get there in a little bit, all of you will disciple others. The question is not if you will, it's who will you make them a disciple of? The Bible simplifies this even more for us. He says basically there's two paths you choose from. You're either a disciple of the world or you're a disciple of Jesus. One leads to destruction, the other one leads to life. And so, again, just to bring some clarity and to just address some kind of concerns that I have in my own heart, that I know in seeing uh, and pastoring others, uh, the definition of a disciple is not merely knowing about someone. It's not just knowledge. It requires knowledge. There's things you need to know. There's truths you need to affirm. But it's not just knowing the right answers. It's a faith that follows And if you've been with us throughout the summer, we saw this all throughout the summer in the Gospel of Mark, right? We called it the discipleship discourse, where Jesus was not satisfied in chapter 8 when Peter just said, you were the Christ. Jesus didn't just pack up and go, all right, I'm going to the cross, now you know. No, he spent this extended period of time, now the rest of his time with them, to show them how they ought to live, that this faith is a faith that follows. What's it look like to follow? We saw verses all throughout the gospel, how it shapes people. Just have them on the screen, rapid fire. Mark 8, 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Mark 10, 43. For, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. This one is in the book of James, but it's a really kind of aggressive and, I think, helpful way of putting it. James 2, 17 and 18. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. James is saying a faith, a claim to believe that does not lead to works, that does not shape your life, that's not really faith. It's just knowledge. To put this another way, if your belief in Jesus does not shape the way you live, then you don't actually believe. You have knowledge, but you're not a disciple. And here's why that's important to clarify, because whenever Christianity across history became Uh, the dominant religion in a culture, the dominant force in history where a majority of the people claim it, there tends to be this growth in this mindset where people can say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I don't follow him. And, And so when they say, I believe in Jesus, they're saying, I believe in facts. I believe these things happened. I learned them as a kid. I said yes and amen when I was in second grade at youth camp. I walked forward that one Sunday, and I know these things, but we talk about it like the same way we say we believe in George Washington. You can open up a book and read things about George Washington, his time as a general and a president, and at some point there's a cherry tree that he may or may not have cut down, and you understand all these different things that you go, yeah, I know, and I believe in George Washington. He existed, did some pretty cool things, but you would never say, and now I'm going to orient my life around George Washington. 
Likewise, there's a fear where people will say they believe in Jesus in this very way. Yeah, I believe that happened. The cross and the empty tomb and the baby in the manger. And then associate that with being a Christian. Even when it clearly doesn't shape or form anything about their lives. That's a fearful place to be in. It's a red flag at best. There's a pastor down in Dallas, kind of the middle of the Bible Belt, named Matt Chandler. He deals with this often because everybody's a Christian in Dallas, right? I mean, everybody is like the Bible Belt Central. There's like evangelical churches on every other corner. So yeah, you're just, I'm a Christian because I'm a Christian because I'm a Christian. Everybody's a Christian in Dallas. And so this is what he says, quote on the screen. To believe in Jesus requires we follow Jesus or we do not believe. To say you believe in Jesus but do not follow him empties belief of its meaning. You cannot say Jesus is the only begotten Son of God who has come to take away the sins of the world and to reconcile us to the Father and to redeem and reconcile all that has gone broken in the world, but I have no intention of surrendering to or following him. And I just love the way he put that. Like, these are massive truths that you're claiming. And then to now say, but like, I don't really need to like, it doesn't need to affect my life. Like, that's kind of strange and kind of weird. That, I mean, that, that should just seem strange to us. So again, say over and over again, what I'm just after and I just want to do because I love all of you is to give clarity. A disciple of Jesus Christ happens by putting your faith in Christ. That is where our righteousness lies, but that faith always results in a desire to follow. A commitment to surrender, to orient our lives around him. That's biblical Christianity. That's true belief. Now listen, is our following perfect? Gosh, no. Unbelievably no. It's messy. It's two steps forward. It's one step back, and it's going to be that way until God calls us home to glory. We are always going to battle the sin that remains in this fallen world. But there is, at our core, a deeply rooted, true desire to pursue and shape our lives around Jesus Christ. True belief does not mean perfect belief. But it means being somebody who has a faith that follows. So let's keep going. We've seen why. We've seen what. So now the question who makes disciples? Who's supposed to be doing this work? Let me give you the short answer. Disciples. No, no, no. Who makes disciples? Yeah. Disciples make disciples. By God's design and by God's grace, it's the very disciples who go and make disciples. And to put it another way, um, it's not just the pastors, elders, and ministry leaders. Now, those people are appointed to lead, hopefully lead by example, hopefully come alongside. But a church where it's kind of set up that you have a few people that do all the ministry and a lot of people that consume, that's a healthy church. That's an unhealthy church. <laughs> Fix that in the podcast, AJ. All right? That's an unhealthy church, whether you're a church of 50 or a church of 5,000. It's an unhealthy church if you have a few that contribute and a lot who consume. Let me show you where I get this. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus makes very uh, clear on this point. Chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he, he being God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, look, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Did you see it? Church leaders are not tasked with the ones who just do the work of the ministry alone. 
but that their primary task, my primary task, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, the saints being the church, because it's the church, all of its members, that are responsible for the building up of all of its members together. Every disciple becomes a disciple maker. So even if you look at a preaching ministry, our preaching ministry here uh, should be an equipping ministry. Where, where you come not expecting just to hear and receive, but you hear and receive in order to be equipped to go out and do. Church at its best is a training ground. It's a training ground where men and women gain the tools and the resources and the community necessary to make disciples. Because every member of a church is a disciple who makes disciples. And we're all on this journey together. And we're being trained to, to follow Jesus Christ and then help others in doing so as well. There's input and then there's output. It flows into you and then it flows out of you. And this is what brings glory to God. And I just wonder, I just want, is this the way you view church? Is this the way you view Grace Church? Where it's a community that you both consume from and contribute to. To only do one or the other is to short circuit your life and your process of discipleship. Let me give you an illustration to show how, how different this difference is between uh, seeing it as to consume versus seeing it to contribute. Um, it's the difference between watching a football game and being on a football team. So today, after the picnic, I'm going to go home and I'm going to watch some football. And I'm going to fight Caden for the TV so he doesn't watch Daniel Tiger, all right? And it's going to be a battle, and I think I'm still stronger than him. Um, but he, so here's what happens. Here's how, how I watch football. I'm always texting my brother. All right, he's a big football fan. He's Giants. I'm Jets. All right, not going there. And, and, but this way we text. I'll, I'll say things like this. We need a first down here. We, we really played hard today. We really need a win. Personal pronouns. I'm sitting on my couch eating Doritos going, we need to get a first down. But, but here's the thing. Um, I'm not in pads. I have no helmet. I'm probably sweating, but that's my own problem. It's not because I'm playing, all right? Um, I'm not in a huddle. I'm not sitting in the coach's box. I'm consuming. I contribute nothing to whether or not they win or lose. And here's the thing. It's fun to watch games, but you know what? I'd much rather play. It's way more exhilarating to be on the field than to be sitting in the stands. And in the church, we have the opportunity to get in the game to be part of it, to talk in personal pronouns. Who makes disciples of Jesus Christ? Disciples, by God's design and by His grace, and we all need to play a part. Here's a verse to memorize, because it's an easy one, but even more important, a verse to live out. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 1. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. NIV puts it this way, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. You're going to do either that or you're going to show people how to follow the example of the world. It won't be both. It's going to be either or. So to the final question, let's move. Where do we make disciples? We hopefully know why and what and who, but where does it happen? Hopefully this answer has been implied all throughout the sermon, but I want to explicitly state it. 
Where does the process of discipleship happen? And then this will set us up for the next four weeks. And not only does it set it up for what's next, it kind of flows from what we just saw. If it's disciples who make work, who do the work of making disciples, then discipleship, that process, is most impactful in the context of a local church. Discipleship happens in community. A community of believers where you are known to others, where others actually know you. Not the I'm pretty good, how are you? No. Like actually know you. What makes you tick? What, and not that everyone has to know, but there's a community within your community that actually knows you and you feel like you're fully known, fully loved. Because that is the means through which God is going to save and sustain you until the very end. Man, life is hard. Like following Jesus is hard. Can I just get one Amen. Like, following Jesus is hard. Like, it's just, it's just hard to do. Like, it's just hard to do day after day and week after week, and there's so much that just comes in on us. We just need to be sustained. What's one of the primary ways God's going to sustain that? One another. Let me show you this, Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us, personal pronouns, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Discipleship is a process, lifelong process. You, people do not become mature disciples overnight like it's an on-off switch. It's more an ongoing, like a dial on a dimmer, slowly turned, and it's going to take all of life to continue to turn, and it's best done in the context of a community. You physically cannot help others follow Jesus and be helped in doing so in isolation. So this concept, this increasingly popular concept in our day, especially amongst younger generations, but it's not just there. This concept of, I love Jesus, follow Jesus, but I have no need for a church. That's an inherent contradiction. You cannot separate the two. The Bible does not ever separate the two or allow you to do so. It gives us this picture, Christ is the head and the church is the body. And it's never worked out for anyone to have their head severed from their body. And it certainly won't spiritually either. And when Jesus came to earth and he discipled these men and women who followed him for three years before he went to the cross, he showed us this. It happens in community. It happens relationally. It's life on life. And so there's an intellectual side to discipleship. There's facts to know. There's truth to acclaim and affirm. But it's also life on life. It's relational. And it has to be both where we see and we show and we learn from people's lives and in the process we grow ourselves. I'll tell you, some of the main things that have matured me in the faith have been watching other brothers and sisters, especially older brothers and sisters in the faith, go through life and how they respond. That's going to do way more to teach you, to show you, than just reading words on a page. I'm all for reading words on a page, but unless you have some people that you can look at and see how they're navigating life, that that is going to be a blessing to you, and you just can't do that sitting in your house by yourself. In this way, discipleship, it's not a class. I think churches made a mistake about this. We're like, this is our discipleship class. Or this is our sermon on discipleship. Or this is a group that's discipleship. When the reality is your whole church experience, every single aspect of it, relationally and structurally, week to week, is involved in discipleship. Everything about a church should contribute to you following Jesus and giving you the tools to help others as well. 
So God has designed the local church to be a place where truth is safeguarded through the teaching and overseeing of pastors and elders, and then where compassionate, bold ministry is carried out amongst its members. And here, here's like the irony of it, is that um, you guys are here right now, and I'm, I don't want to assume anything, but the people probably need to hear this most, they probably aren't here. But I don't also want to assume that too. Like I know like I was sitting in church for years going like, what am I doing here? What's the point? When are we going to get out? I'm starting to smell the food. Like there's just, and, and like, that's the way that I think a lot of us can approach it and just wonder like, why am I here? Like what is the point of all of this? But this growing trend of all I need is Jesus, so why bother with the church? That's a question many are asking. And I think even more, probably you're too afraid to ask it, but are thinking it. So I wrote a blog on this topic this past week, and there's a, a man named Sam Alberry. He's based out of England. He, he wrote a book called that title, Why Bother with the Church? And I'll share a quote here from him on the screen. That is how God has designed his people to flourish. Outside of the local church, we will lack the encouragement God has for us, and we will be failing to help others grow in their faith too. To think we will carry on our, on our own Christian lives is therefore a little arrogant. I'm saying I can manage without the encouragement that God wants to provide me through the local church. And quite selfish. I'm saying that I won't encourage those in my local church. Discipleship, it's intellectual, but it's relational. And you won't be complete without both. And you cannot relate to others alone. Physically impossible. So to close... Why make disciples? Because it's God's plan for bringing, bringing people from death to eternal life. What is a disciple? A person who believes in the person and work of Jesus Christ and orients his or her life to follow Jesus. Who makes disciples? Disciples make disciples. And then where do we make disciples? In the context of a local community of believers under the leadership of pastors and elders, otherwise known as the church. This is the driving force of what we ought to do. This is our primary task, and it's done all for the glory of God. And how amazing is it that God, in our highest aim and our highest task, is also what brings us our greatest joy. It's not easy. It's really hard. But it's the highest joy you can have to live for this way, and that's what sparks and fulfills you more than anything else will. So that's two weeks of our vision series. That's, it was a little bit different of a sermon approach, but big picture, glorifying God, big picture, making disciples. Now, what kind of things will Grace Church be doing to make those things happen, to hit that primary aim, to hit that primary task? Four things, worship, community, service, and mission, and we'll take one week on each over the next four weeks. Let's pray.